Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Haggai. And we've reached that point in the uh, Minor Prophets where you don't need to feel like you're having to dig back into the depths of the Old Testament to find these books. Just turn to Matthew and start flipping pages backwards. You'll get there pretty quickly. Haggai chapter 1. And the first chapter of the prophecy of Haggai is our text for the evening. Haggai chapter 1. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask him now to bless his word to us. 
Father in heaven, we ask now that the reading and the preaching of your word would be blessed to our hearts and that you would feed our souls and that you would exalt our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our very midst tonight. Bless us, Lord, as we come by faith to the means of grace and make them a means of grace to each one of us, for we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a common occurrence, isn't it? that we start projects and then we get stalled out on them and then never get back to them. Or lots of time passes before we go back and take back up whatever that project was. You know, we, we get going on something and we're well-intentioned, but then we get sidetracked, uh, perhaps hindered in some way early on, and then we don't get back to it. I was trying to think of some examples, but I'm sure every one of you has some, just from home improvement projects or things you need or want to do around the house, projects for work. You get going, and then something derails that, and you never quite get back to it. That's what happened to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. By the time we come to the prophecy and the word of the Lord by Haggai, The people of Judah have been sent into exile. The whole land now, the southern kingdom, along with the holy city, Jerusalem, and the temple have been destroyed. People have been in exile, and now they've come back. They're back in the land now after the exile. And they began building the house, but then the work stalled out. If we uh, read in the prophecies of Isaiah and the prophecies of Jeremiah, Those prophets spoke of this king, a pagan king, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. And the prophets spoke of him by name hundreds of years before he lived. And they said, this Cyrus is going to make a decree that the people go back to the land, that the people rebuild the house of the Lord. And that was fulfilled in Ezra chapter 1. Verse 2, and in fact, the words of Ezra 1 in the early verses of Ezra are a duplication of the words, the very final words of Second Chronicles because the book of Second Chronicles carries us through. It just fast forwards through those years of exile and then it speaks of the decree of Cyrus the king and he announces that anyone who wants to go back to the land of Israel can go, they should go, and they should rebuild the house of the Lord. That was the decree of this pagan king by the name of Cyrus. And so that's, what, uh, that's the point to which we come as we consider the words of Haggai. And if we take the sum of the content of chapter 1 of Haggai, I think the best way to, to sum it up would be to use the words of Jesus of Nazareth. Because what this chapter is teaching us, Haggai chapter 1, is what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, in other words, your bodily wants, all of your needs will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God will add all those other things to you. That's the message of this chapter. And the four 
things that I want to bring to your attention from this text. First of all, we need to consider the historical setting because it is very important. I've kind of given you a little bit of that. Um, but then secondly, we'll, we'll see how the people of God were neglecting God's house. They had reached a point where they had given up the work and didn't show any signs of eagerness to get back to it. Then we'll see God's fatherly discipline upon them because of this. And then finally, we'll see them gloriously, thankfully, graciously obeying God's voice. So first of all, the historical setting. At this point, again, we're after the return from exile. I've really been looking forward to getting to the book of Haggai because Haggai and um, Zechariah and Malachi, those last three minor prophets, the last three books in the Old Testament, they are the post-exilic prophets. All the other prophets we've looked at and that we've, we've gone through up to this point, they are prophesying to the people before the land of Judah was destroyed and overrun by Babylon, uh, before Jerusalem was destroyed, before the temple was destroyed and the people were carried away. Now, we're in the aftermath of that. We fast-forwarded several decades, many decades, and the people are coming back to the land. In fact, they are back in the land. Haggai is the first of only three post-exilic tra- uh, prophets. Now, it was during his days, roughly speaking, that the Holy Spirit also breathed out the words of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, <clears throat> and then the very last prophet through whom God spoke in the Old Testament period was Malachi. Malachi prophesied roughly around 450 B.C., And then after Malachi's prophecy concludes, there's no more special revelation from God for about four centuries. God, in a sense, became silent. Not that he isn't always speaking through natural revelation and through the written word that already existed. So it's not as if he wasn't speaking, but he was speaking through his word. He can speak, of course, through natural revelation, but there were no more prophets. For 400 years, no one was able to stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and give new revelation because prophecy ceased for centuries. And, um, and, and, and this is one of the reasons why I've been so eager to get to the post-exilic prophets, because the people, especially after Malachi was done prophesying, and you have that curtain drawn on the drama of redemption, which up to that point had been something of a tragedy, we'd have to say. And there's this intermission of several centuries There were faithful people living in the land during those times, and those faithful people live in very much the same way that you and I live now, in several important ways. First of all, the government they lived under. God's people in the, in the promised land, when they came back from exile, were living under a more or less tolerant but secular government. It's very similar to the way we live. We don't live under a government that is uh, explicitly Christian, certainly, and it's not a religious or theocratic government. We live under a secular government, and so did those people. They didn't have a king of their own. 
Another way in which their lives were similar to ours is they, they had God's inspired word, but all they had was God's word written. They had Moses. They had the prophets. They had Psalms. But they didn't have prophets standing up and saying, thus says the Lord, and bringing new word from God. They had to rely upon the word of God written just as we do. And then finally, the people in those days, in those days after the exile, they were living in expectation. They were waiting because God had made promises. He promised that there was going to come a prophet like unto Moses, the anointed one, the Messiah. And the people in Haggai's days were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. Very similar to the way in which you and I are now waiting for his second coming, for his return. You see, so there's, there's almost this kind of romance about this period because those people lived in very much the same way we live now. Now to put a time stamp on Haggai's prophecy, it says here, the very opening of the chapter, it was the second year of this Persian king, Darius, and we can place that at pretty much 520 B.C. And here, too, it's kind of sobering to read this in the second year of Darius the king because other prophets, when they mentioned it was this year or that year of this or that king, they were talking about a king of Israel. They were talking about a king of Judah, perhaps. But we're not talking about a Judean or Israelite king now. We're talking about a pagan king, a king from a foreign land, a foreign emperor. And ever since the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., from that time forward, Israel was never again a sovereign nation. Think about that. They came back to the land, they reoccupied the land, but the whole time, Throughout the centuries and and then up until the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple again in 70 AD, they were always under the government of some other nation, whether it was the Babylonians, followed by the Persians, then later the Greeks, and then finally the Romans, under whom they were uh, subject in the days of Jesus Christ. And those Romans, of course, were the ones who eventually destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem again but they never had their own rule they were never again a theocracy there were faithful in the land certainly there always was a faithful remnant but they always lived under pagan rule now you've got these names mentioned Shealtiel, uh, who is the father of Zerubbabel, and you've got Joshua, who is the high priest. He was the son of Jehozadak. Well, who are these people? Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, had been appointed probably by either Darius himself um, or some other subordinate of the king to be governor of Judah. He wasn't the king but he was sort of a a vassal ruler, governor. Zerubbabel, we know from other passages of Scripture, was a descendant of King David. 
He was, he was in the Davidic line. He was not only a descendant of David, but he was an ancestor of Christ. You might not be a big fan of reading the biblical genealogies, but I invite you tonight, when you get home, before you go to bed, turn to Matthew 1 and read the genealogy of Jesus. Zerubbabel is in there, as is his father Shealtiel. And the same thing with the genealogy of, of Jesus in Luke that traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. Right there, Zerubbabel, and that's our man here in Haggai chapter 1. He was a legitimate heir to the throne of David. The problem is, Israel didn't have a king at this time. They weren't allowed to have a king. They had a governor. And Zerubbabel was chosen for that office. <clears throat> and if you look at those genealogies, whether you're going backwards to Adam in Luke or whether you're going forward from, from David to Jesus in Matthew, after Zerubbabel, you've got a lot of other names, but Zerubbabel is the last one we have any information about from Scripture. All the rest are people we've never heard of and you don't hear of anywhere else in Scripture. They lived in obscurity. So that's um, Zerubbabel. And then you've got Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, it says. In 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 15, we're told that Jehozadak was high priest when Jerusalem was overthrown and Judah was carried into exile. So Jehozadak was high priest when the exile began. Joshua, his son, when they returned from exile, took the office of high priest. He's the next generation. And he's mentioned several times in the prophecy of Zechariah. Zerubbabel, by the way, is also featured in Zechariah, as well as Nehemiah and the book of Ezra. These were faithful men. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel kind of representing the civil government. Joshua representing the, the religious leadership. They were faithful men. And there was apparently a faithful remnant within the land in their days. So that's the historical setting. We're after the exile and we're back in the land. <clears throat> but what were they doing back in the land after the exile? They were neglecting God's house. That's what we find in the text here. These returned exiles had begun to rebuild the temple. If you turn back with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 3, we find that the, uh, the exiles who had returned to the land had begun to rebuild the temple. So, in Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, it says, Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and brothers and Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and their brothers. And then it speaks of laying the foundation of the house of God. But 
we also read that opposition arose. There were people who were, had been living in the land during the exile, interlopers, um, foreigners, and then you know, even some people from the surrounding regions, and they didn't like the idea that there were Israelites back in the land now. They didn't like the idea that these people were rebuilding the house of Yahweh, and so they created opposition. They caused trouble, and you see that in Ezra chapter 4. For instance, look at verse 4 of Ezra 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. If you skip down in that same chapter to verse 21... Uh, we see a decree from Ahasuerus. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. So there was opposition. There certainly was, and it was real. But the problem is, once the work stopped, the people of Judah lost sight of the importance of the need to rebuild. And that's what Haggai is rebuking them for. If we go back to our first chapter of Haggai now, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So Cyrus was dead. Cyrus was, with the, was the king who made the decree. Go back. And he even, as I said, it's amazing. But this is how God uses even pagan kings. He used Cyrus to make the decree that they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they began, and then they were thwarted for a little while. But since Cyrus, the one who issued the decree, was dead, then the people, uh, the, the decree, I guess they sensed that it wasn't any, any longer in force. And along the line, the people's priorities changed. They got busy building their own houses. And apparently, some of them were pretty nice. That's what, when it makes reference to paneled houses. These were houses that were very nicely finished on the inside. You know, you put up the stone, and then you plaster it, and then put cedar paneling on it. These were some cushy digs that the people were living in. But then there were these ruins on the Temple Mount, on that foundation that we read about in Ezra. The initial structure was just standing there, deteriorating, falling victim to the elements because nobody was doing anything with it. See, at first, there was a genuine providential hindrance. You have a foreign king, an emperor, who said, stop. But the opposition, at some point, fell away, and yet the impetus and the motivation to, be, to resume the building just wasn't there. What was at first a providential hindrance just turned into excuse-making, and so the people were saying, it's not time. It's not time yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. But I want you then to think about the implications of that, and think about the importance 
of God's house, the significance of the temple. Someone might justifiably ask, well, he's God. Does God need a house? Well, you know the answer to that question. No, God doesn't need a house. He has no need of anything. In fact, again, those beloved verses in Isaiah 66, God says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. All these things I've made, where's the house you would build for me, God says. He's, he's exalting uh, his, his greatness, his, his being high and lifted up, his otherness and his, his immensity. We can't build a house that he could literally dwell in. And when David proposes to build a house for the Lord, you know, God said to to David, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, David. But he tells David in the process, did I ever ask why haven't you built me a house yet? He didn't. He said, ever since I brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, I've been dwelling in tents, so to speak. I don't need a house, and I don't need you to build me one. But the thing is, ultimately, he did allow Solomon to build the house. And once the house was there, it served a purpose, an important one. And it needed to stay. And for the honor of God's name, it needed to be maintained. And now that it had been destroyed and raised to the ground, it needed to be rebuilt. Because whether you're talking about a tabernacle, a tent, a temporary dwelling that can move from one place to another, or whether you're talking about the temple, this dwelling place that was ordained by God was a focal point, a religious focal point for the people. It was a God-ordained place for his offerings. It was a God-ordained place for his, the priestly service. There were things that God decreed that the Levitical priests should do for him, and it was in the temple that they were to do those things. So it was a God-ordained place for his offerings. It was also a God-ordained symbol of his presence among the people. It's not that his presence among them was, was bound to or dependent upon the temple, but that place, first the tabernacle and then the temple, was the symbol of the presence of Almighty God in the midst of his people. And so that's why it was such an important thing. And as we see in the text, God takes pleasure in those things. He ordained the sacrifices, and they were for him. The smoke of the sacrifice rising from the altar, he said, would be a sweet aroma to him. And he takes pleasure in dwelling among his people. And the temple was the symbol of the very fact that he did dwell among them. Another significant thing about the temple is that it's a consecrated place. It's a special place, devoted to the glory of God. In a certain sense, that's what makes this building special. If we had to, brothers and sisters, we could worship God out there on that Uh, unimproved lot there. We could just gather in the forest and have a perfectly acceptable, good worship service. God can be worshiped anywhere. That's what he told the woman at the well. Neither on that mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. You can do that anywhere. 
the beauty and the purpose of this building and why we're so thankful for it is this is a place that we can dedicate to that purpose. (coughs) It's a consecrated place because God is gathering a people to himself and this is a place where we can do that. There's one other thing, though, about the temple, maybe the most important of all, that made it so important that it be rebuilt. And that was that many of the messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament are centered around the temple. Prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ had to do with things that he was going to do right there. And we'll see some of those. But it was a messianic necessity ordained by God. There had to be a temple so that Jesus could come to it and fulfill God's word. So, the temple, it's a place of worship. It's a place of sacrifices for sin. It's God's dwelling place, figuratively speaking. It's a place for God's pleasure. It's a place for His glory. Isn't that what he said in verse (coughs) 8? He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. But the people had neglected God's house and the neglect of it signified, first of all, apathy towards worship. Secondly, lack of concern for sin because if there's no temple, there's no sacrifices. What are they going to do with their guilt? They can't offer sacrifices in their backyard or on their rooftops. They need a temple. So the neglect of God's house showed apathy towards worship, lack of concern for sin, and indifference about the presence of God in their midst. Remember what that temple represented. It represented God dwelling in the midst of his people. And their lack of care about the temple indicated they had very little care or concern about God being with them. So that was the neglect of God's house. One commentator, Michael Stead, writing the ESV expository commentary, said, by pursuing their own needs first, the people had failed to live as the covenant people of God. And so, the Lord withheld covenant blessings. And when he did that, that was a form of his fatherly discipline. Which brings us to our third point. God's fatherly discipline. God calls his people to take note of what's going on. Twice in this passage, verse 5 and verse 7, he uses, the, the ESV translators use this phrase, consider your ways. Or more literally, set your heart on your ways. Really think about what's going on here is what he's saying. What were the people experiencing? God's just pointing this out to them. He's shining a spotlight, shining a spotlight on, on their conditions. And he's saying, first of all, you're experiencing futility at every turn. Look at verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. Clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Nothing's working. 
Think about that, God says. If they earn wages, their wages are vanishing. They had great expectations, but were getting paltry outcomes. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, that little, in other words, whatever that little was that it came to, I blew it away. See, they expected much, but ended up with a pittance. And even that paltry yield, God himself blew away. You see how he accepts responsibility for it. You expected much, it yielded little, and even when you brought that home, I blew it away, God says. And who else could do that? Who else has the power to call for a drought? (laughs) When you think about the different ways that um, one nation tries to subvert another and all the different economic tools and intelligence uh, things they try to use to thwart the success of another nation or to disrupt society in another nation. One thing that our enemies can't do to us and we can't do to them is call for a drought. God alone has the power to do something like that. And we ought to consider the fact that ultimately in His sovereignty, God has power to affect every sector of the economy of the people in Haggai's day as well as in ours. Look at verse 10 and 11. The heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth. On man and beast and their labors. See, in all of our economic wisdom, we think we've got it figured out, and if we Work hard, we'll succeed, and we'll have prosperity, and we'll have plenty. We'll have an abundance. But we've got to remember that God is Lord over all those things. And He can take all of our best and hardest, most diligent efforts and make them yield nothing. Work hard as you're able, but it won't prosper in rebellion against God. And for us in our context today, here in the United States of America in 2022, the same is true. God is sovereign over every aspect of our existence as well, our economy, our society, our nation, our politics. And you won't prosper if you're rebelling against God. Now someone might raise the question, hey, wait a minute. I know of people, I might even know personally some people who don't care one whit about God or Jesus or the gospel or the church, and they're doing quite well. They're wealthy. They have everything they could need or want. Don't some people who hate God prosper and have tremendous wealth? Yes. Yes, some people who hate God prosper and have tremendous wealth and it ought to frighten the daylights out of them because one of the worst possible judgments any man or woman could have placed upon them is for God to leave them alone and let them have exactly what they want 
so that they'll have to answer to him in the judgment day for all the wealth that he gave them that they didn't thank him for. All the blessings that he poured out upon them, all the success that he granted them that they used for their own selfish and wicked purposes, they will answer. That, I say, is one of the worst curses God could bring upon a person to just leave them alone. Well, thankfully, that's not what he was doing with these people in the land in the days of Haggai. God says to them, consider your ways. It's as if God is pointing to them and saying, look at what's happening to you. Take note. Connect the dots. Think about this. What he was bringing upon them, he expresses and describes in words of covenant curses that we find in Deuteronomy. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 11.17, where God is declaring the curses that he's going to bring upon his people if they disobey him, if they break covenant with him, if they turn away from him and serve other gods. He says, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit. Isn't that exactly what Haggai points out to the people that was happening to them? Or Deuteronomy 28, 49 through 51, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, oil, or the increase of your herds or the young of your flock. So as the word of the Lord came to the people through the prophet Haggai, the words that he was using would have reminded them of these words. It would have reminded them of the covenant curses and would rightfully have alarmed the people. And it would have made them connect the dots and say, the very things we were doing back then are what caused us to have to go into exile in the first place. Now we're back. Are we going to fall into those same behaviors again? Are we going to neglect the Lord our God again? So you see, God was not dealing with this remnant of his people as enemies. If he was dealing with them as enemies, he would have just left them alone. But instead, he rebuked them. Instead, he brought a taste of those covenant curses upon them. And by doing so, he was warning them and he was disciplining them as beloved children. And we find repeatedly in the New Testament that that's what God does. If he loves you, he's going to discipline you. Hebrews 12, 6, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. Or the Lord Jesus, the glorified Savior, speaking in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And finally, what that brings us to now is that the people who heard the words of Haggai did repent. They obeyed God's voice. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joseph, uh, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. The civil leadership, the religious leadership, and the general populace, the faithful remnant among God's people, they obeyed. And what we're seeing here then is, is a kind of revival. 
amongst the people of the land. But that obedience that's described in verse 12 cannot be separated from what we read in verse 14. Look at that. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. God stirred them up, you see. He was at work. It was His Spirit. God's Spirit must stir our hearts. Revival and obedience to God's Word will never come by human effort alone. It's not something we can muster up. It's not something we can be persuasive enough to get people to do. It has to be something God does. It has to be something God's Spirit does. God has to quicken us. He's the one that has to stir us up and breathe life into us so that we will obey. And so, anytime we pray for revival, that's what we need to be praying for. We need to do what God calls us to do. But if we really want revival, what we need God to do is to stir the hearts of men and women and children in our land. Another thing that's crucial is that it says the people feared the Lord. Did you see that? The end of verse 12. They obeyed the Lord their God. They listened to the voice of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we need to embrace this concept. The concept, the idea of the fear of the Lord. And it's not talking about some kind of a cringing fear that flees away from God. But never allow someone to convince you that the idea of the fear of the Lord doesn't involve some degree of fear. God is greatly to be feared. He's greatly to be loved as well. But the fear of the Lord is an idea we need to embrace and accept. What is it? The fear of the Lord is a profound, holy reverence for Almighty God. You know, there are people that we revere, people that we respect. But our respect and our reverence for God should outweigh anything that we have for any other creature. And so we call it the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a settled disposition of heart to love and to serve God. And I will say that the fear of the Lord is a gospel concept It's not an archaic Old Testament law and works-based idea. No, it's a gospel concept. The fear of the Lord. In fact, in full biblical context, if you take the whole testimony of the whole Bible, the fear of the Lord at its essence is saving faith. The fear of the Lord is what it means to be in saving relationship with God through grace by grace through faith. And that's what the people had. They feared the Lord, it says. They were stirred by the Lord, and in the fear of Him, they came and they worked on the temple. Chapter 1 ends very much as it began. Look at verse 1 again. Second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. And then if you jump down to verse 15, it says they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, 
on the second year of Darius the king. <clears throat> the only difference is the, the, the order of uh, time units is inverted. In chapter one, or verse 1, it's year, month, day. You get to the end of the chapter, it's day, month, year. And it makes these bookends on this chapter. kind of ties it up with a bow, you might say. It was in the 24th day of the month, the sixth month, and the second year of Darius, the king. Darius is king. He's not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He's not a faithful man. He doesn't fear the Lord. He's a pagan. He's a foreign king. But that's no obstacle to God. And it was no obstacle to the people being faithful to God. And no matter what human authority is over you or me at any given time, God's promise is, I am with you. It doesn't matter who's president or who's king or who's premier, or who's governor or who's mayor. No matter who is over us, God says, I'm with you. So by rebuilding the house of, the, of God, the people were declaring their ultimate allegiance to God. Yeah, they served Darius. They had to. But they were declaring their ultimate allegiance to God. God is above all kings. And by being able eventually to reinstitute temple worship, the people were acknowledging God's righteousness. So you see there, they're acknowledging God's kingdom. They're acknowledging his righteousness. So by building this temple again, the people of Haggai's day were seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now just a few points of application to close. In Haggai's day, the Lord affirmed and exercised power over all aspects of the people's daily lives. Their resources, their means, even the forces of nature, the weather. And he still has that power. He has all power. Then and now, he's the one who enables people to get wealth. And the message of this chapter is the same as the one Jesus preached. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, the things you need for your body, the things you need to live. They'll be added to you. Now, should you be concerned about getting a living for yourself and for your family? Yes, of course you should. But keep first things first. Secondly, God commanded that his house be rebuilt. Not for the primary purpose that curses would be lifted or that his people would prosper but for his own pleasure and glory and this shows us what our motivation for obedience to God ought to be we shouldn't obey God hoping to reap benefit we should obey God to glorify him We don't have any promise from God of a cause and effect relationship between faithfulness and material abundance. Just ask the Christians in North Korea about that. Ask Christians in China. Ask Christians in Muslim-dominated, oppressive countries in the Middle East. They're being faithful, and they're not prospering in the temporal sense. So there's no uh, one-to-one cause and effect relationship between our obedience and wealth. But God promises he'll be with you. He promises he'll provide for you what you need day by day.
Under the new covenant, working on God's house does not mean to construct a church building. We've done that, but as I said earlier, we have a reason for that. We've built the house so that God can gather people to himself here. It doesn't mean constructing a church building for us today. That's not what it means to work on God's house. Working on God's house for us, it means bringing people to Christ, leading people to Him, sharing the gospel with them, gathering them in the name of the Lord, because it's the Lord who's building you and me up into a spiritual house, like living stones. We are the house in which He now dwells. And then finally, what did God say to the people when they obeyed and feared the Lord? He said, I am with you. What beautiful words. I am with you. What more could any God-fearing person want than that? To know that the Lord is with them. That's the Emmanuel principle. God with us. And where does that principle find its fullest expression? It's found in Jesus Christ, whose name is Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, enable us to put first things first, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And we trust you to give us what we need day by day. And we pray that in all these things you'd be glorified and that you'd continue to build your kingdom to the glory and the honor of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.